Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hey, Shafi. Hey, good to see you. It's been a long time. It's been, well, we worked out, I think it's six or seven years, which is crazy but that's how long I've been in Australia so kind of makes sense now just seems like a long 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 time how have you been tell me oh how's Australia uh everything's fine I I unfortunately have to work closely with this guy (laughs) so um but no things are great uh we've had some horrendous weather which you've probably heard about but luckily you know in the city we're not hugely affected to be completely honest mm. but uh, no things are good work is good um yeah obviously i've done a u-turn in, in the career and not doing surgery anymore so um you obviously didn't um sort of brainwash me <laughs> enough <laughs> he got out i probably didn't inspire you to leave surgery no correct <laughs> no absolutely but um, no but things are good thank you and, ha- and how are you what's been happening i mean it's been an unbelievably crazy year particularly for someone like yourself but what, what's happening right now are you working or are you not working or yeah so obviously um hospitals opening up again we're busy over christmas new year with uh, a lot of covid cases uh, yeah. most elective surgery three months yeah so now we're kind of in the recovery phase uh, i think next week we're bringing back some surgery into the london again uh, priced out a lot of stuff went to the private sector, uh, to the cancer work, etc. So, I, I guess the cancer work and the emergency work has been carrying on, but the other elective stuff will take time. Yeah, and we've got a backlog of half a million, maybe more cases to do around the UK, which will take probably years, Jake. Yeah, that's. Uh... Much can get back? I don't think we're. I don't think we reach the target. There's enough capacity going forward. So you know. So so yeah. Still do my clinics occasionally. I'm part time at the hospital now. So I came back from my sabbatical, went part time to uh, concentrate on my other things that I do. As you've seen, Jake, from my yeah. work that I do, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And Jake yeah, says so right. J- Jake says you're responsible for saving his marriage. Yes, uh, you, you, you probably don't. You, you probably don't remember this. <laughs> well, what what, well, so when I got my first registrar job, surgical reg job, um, I was sent immediately to Nottingham from London, and I just got married three months before starting the job, and obviously my wife was working in London, and we had a house in London, and so I said, look. Um, you can obviously move with me. I want you to move move with me, but it, it sort of seems a bit weird because we know it's going to be a temporary move to Nottingham. It was initially supposed to be six months. Then next, then it's to 12. Um, and I think at the sixth month point, thank God I saw a job offer at the Barts uh, uh, and the London doing breast surgery and you interviewed me. Uh, I don't know okay. if you remember that. <laughs> and uh, you gave me the job. So, uh, yeah, you probably saved my marriage three months into it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure it's good or a bad thing sometimes, Jake. No, no, trust me, trust me, it was good. <laughs> it was good. Uh, good. Thank you, it was a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. So we've got a bit of a delay we're going to need to manage. So it looks, sounds like you're probably about a second behind us with, with internet lag. So we'll, we'll just be mindful of that. Now, Jake's told me all about you. I've 
been fangirling out watching you on your TED Talks and all the other various platforms that you've been on. So obviously Jake knows who you are. I've orientated myself a little bit, but just for our audience, would you mind just, I guess, telling them a little bit, a little bit about yourself and um, what your special interest of medicine is? Because it's a very exciting discussion that we're going to have. Yeah, so I'm a consultant surgeon uh, based at the Royal London Hospital. Uh, and I specialize in uh, colorectal cancer. I've been a cancer surgeon for a long time, doing what's called um, laparoscopic surgery. That's keyhole surgery uh, for a lot of people. That's been my kind of passion from the um, clinical side. Uh, and I've been a consultant for 15 years. On the other side, I have a huge interest in education. Uh, I was associate dean at Bart's Medical School. Um, so uh, I run the teaching program for undergraduate students for about 10 years, as well as leading surgical training. I was also a postgraduate training surgery, a lot of work around the postgraduate kind of area of um, training uh, for London uh, trainees. And I also sat on the RCS Council, the Royal College of Surgeon Council, as a council member running what's called the International Programme. So I have a huge interest in global health and empower people around the world to do better. And on the other side of that, in the last five or six years, which I think is quite pertinent, I've had a huge interest in technology and innovation uh, and entrepreneurship, really thinking about how do we um, improve access to healthcare using the technologies that we're now describing. And so I guess I was quite early in that kind of movement, revolution towards using more and more technology. Now, of course, with the pandemic, we've seen it much more complex. So I guess I have a number of uh, roles, the education side, the digital health side, technology, and was clinical. And more importantly, for me, the impact is about global health and improving outcomes uh, for people around the world. You know, I, I call it democratizing healthcare uh, and to improve standards. So I, I guess those are kind of my uh, three or four pillars of interest and passion I have at the moment. Yeah, I mean, for those people who haven't come across your work, I think you've hugely undersold yourself there, um, which is fair enough. I know you don't want to blow your own trumpet, but if you just go to Shafi's Wikipedia page, it's um, just insane how many things you've done, how many accolades you've achieved, what you're doing, uh, how many uh, sort of healthcare systems that you're advising with internationally, conflict zones. Uh, you're the British military civilian advisor for general surgery. You've got your own company, Medical Realities. It's it just, honestly, it just goes on and on. So I, I think you should be very proud and um, hopefully we'll get into some of that. Um, and, uh, and and the link was that I, I used to obviously train in, in the UK and, and Shafi was one of my consultants. So yeah. So why don't we, um, I don't know where to, really where to start with this, but I guess just to orientate the people listening, this is going to be a bit of an unusual one where we sort of almost look into the future of, uh, well, healthcare, medicine, medical education, surgery, and we'll try to somehow mirror that to aesthetics and, and what I do and what David's interested in. But I think it's just going to be a fascinating talk anyway. So why don't we talk about firstly, what motivated you to to sort of, you know, do something a bit different six years ago, Shafi, because it is quite different. And I'm wondering what your colleagues thought about it as well. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess um, um, human beings, um, this is more philosophical uh, around your career pathways, need change. Uh, we are people uh, that every five, 10 years almost need to challenge ourselves again or indeed um, look for new avenues. It's just who we are. And I think one thing that medicine doesn't do well, uh, Jake, is help people over the course of their career to rethink, redesign, uh, do different things, find new challenges. Because we, with medicine, we've ever the same job for a long period of time. 
So what I was doing at the time was say, okay, I've always been challenging what's around me. As a surgeon, we've always been innovative to do new operations, finding new techniques, et cetera. We're always trying to find the next best thing. And I guess I've always been interested in technology and innovation uh, at the outset, throughout my career, finding new ways of using tech to improve patient care. I think the thing that really turned it on its head was around, I think, 2014, 15, where technology became available. Prior to that, we didn't have all these technologies, Jake. We were struggling. We, well, of course, we had computers. We had, obviously, powerful devices. But look at where we are now with all these technologies. And I tell the audiences, and this is really an exciting time to be alive, yeah? If you look at the technology, and I described some of them, you know, so the immersive technology like VR, AR, or mixed reality, AI, blockchain, nanobiotechnology, wearable sensors, big data, analytics. So all those things actually have come at the same point of human existence. And I call it this the inflection point of humanity. So because that came at the right time, and I was looking for different challenges and ideas to provide solutions for healthcare and education, it was quite, it was quite a nice marriage almost. It came together at the same time. So I feel I was lucky to be in the right space at the right time. But also, I guess I was interested in exploiting the use of these technologies uh, going forward. So I think that's what happened. But also, again, we're looking for new avenues, new challenges for us to exploit our own interests and passions. And so we just we just maneuvered ourselves out online. I do. I found myself in a unique space. It wasn't something I was planning on doing, uh, kind of pivoting in my role as a surgeon. But now, six years later, we're seeing many people out there, many healthcare workers, doctors, and others now actually also embracing this new world that kind of I discovered about six years ago, uh, and that's really exciting. So that was the real reason uh, that I kind of pivoted. Right time, right place, right technologies. Uh, and also my, my being a senior enough in position to be able to use some of those technologies into clinical practice. And so how did it start? You're, you're doing bowel cancer surgery every day. You're doing your ward rounds. You're doing your standard job. And then what was the sort of first you know, step to, to sort of taking a leap into the unknown? Yeah, the spark. Yeah, let me tell you the spark. Let's go back. Uh, to a date that changed my life immeasurably. That was 2014. I remember quite clearly. Prior to that, I'd been teaching um, students uh, the art of surgery for many years at the medical school. And I looked at the operating theatre, which is obviously uh, the main focus for surgery. We bring students in. As you remember, as a medical student, uh, Jake, uh, you come in as a medical student, uh, you allocated a surgeon or a clinical team, you go into the operating theatre, and you're one of maybe six, seven, eight people, students, in that theatre. And remember, you largely ignored. Okay, you remember? <laughs> or shouted people, <laughs> people are busy in the operating theatre. And quite rightly so, the operation is quite important. Um, and so you get ushered to the side of the wall and you just stand there in the back for about eight hours a day, right? And not really engaging. If you're lucky, you might be able to scrub up and actually get involved in the operation and only one person at a time maybe. You may be asked a question, of which you never know the answer to, of course, it's designed to make you feel <laughs> humble and not know what's going on. And so the experience for, for decades was that. We assumed that you could learn in the environment just by being the presence of the operation. I call it teaching by osmosis and diffusion, which is not a great way of learning, but no active learning. And we've accepted that for many years. And I always said, look, that can't be right. That's just, that's passive. How about active learning? So I took the idea of different ways of learning the operating theatre, whether we take them outside, the students teach them suturing skills um, uh, or do some minor operations, whatever it is. So look, then we what we did, so the Google Glass came out. Now, I'm not sure you remember the Google yeah. Glass, uh, Jake. It came out around about 2013, 12 initially, 
uh, launched as a new way of using wearable technology um, literally on your head. And so when that came out, I was really thought, okay, that's a really interesting idea. This allows you to put this little glass on your head uh, and you can literally record videos, you can stream songs if you want to, you can send emails, whatever. It's a lovely little device, but way ahead of its time. When it came out, the world wasn't ready for Google Glass. Uh, and so when it was released, I was managed to get hold of it very quickly, very early. And I thought, okay, this is great utility. And it's not about the glass itself, it's how do I use the fact you can stream live from that perspective. So very quickly, I decided that I would practice streaming an operation. So see if I could what, perform an operation, use the glass on my head, stream uh, to a few students, see what that could look like. It went well. The first experiments went really well. So then we decided to get much more uh, global. Then I decided to stream a live operation. This was a cancer operation in 2014 um, to a global audience. And so I was really unsure. This was new territory. No one had done this before. This was kind of pushing the boundaries. But I thought, look, I teach all the time. Um, I'm very comfortable in my setting of teaching. We'll pick an operation I do routinely that's not risky. And this was a cancer operation. It's called a right hemicolectomy, Jake. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And so, and then we stream live. And we thought, let's experiment, put on a platform. And so, and then people around the world, students and trainees uh, mostly, could watch the operation through my eyes, my points of view. And also they could watch on their smartphones or their iPads or computers. More importantly, they could interact. They could actually type a message or a little question into their uh, smartphone, which would then come up in my glass in the corner. As I was operating, I could see the question coming up. I could answer in real time as I was teaching people close to me. And that was amazing because that scaled very quickly. On that day, I think there's about almost 14,000 people across the globe who are glued their screens watching the operation live. That's amazing. Uh, I had my students on, on the electives. I'm not in Bali, Indonesia, places like that, on their beach, literally taking pictures on their smartphones, saying, I'm here on my elective. I'm being trained by you from around the world. And that really had an amazing impact to me. It meant that it could scale very quickly. People were actually not frightened by it. It seemed to work. Uh, and it was the first time people would use that kind of technology on a global level. So that gave me the, the reason of, of scale. Thought, okay, it's not about teaching one or two students. How do I share my knowledge on a much more global scale? How do I get people around the world to have the same standards of learning? What can I share? And that's what it demonstrated, the connectivity of people who are on their smartphones, who are around the world, who wanted, desperate for a good education. And I could share skills from a hospital in London, for example. And I shared an anecdote with the audience very quickly. I remember this girl got in touch um, I said, thank you so much for the teaching. My name is, I can't remember her name, but she said, I'm uh, watching you from the Marianas Islands. Oh, wow. Okay? So I said, where is, I had to know where the Marianas Islands was, quite frankly. Right? So I Googled it. And there's a tiny island, obviously, in the, south, in the Pacific. And uh, with the inhabit- I think there's about 12,000 people on the island. And she was a medical student, third year from there, going to Guam. I was teaching on a remote island, for example, from just using a Google Glass technology from London. And that really confirmed the power of connectivity for me. Yeah. And then obviously from that perspective, I realized actually these kind of ideas uh, have global scale. So that, that was a story when it first started. And of course, yeah, the media took it, it was on national news, et cetera, and all the papers covered the story. But it was just me saying, actually, this, why shouldn't we do this? What's the barrier here? Why can't we teach people on a global level? So that, that was a spark. Uh, going back to 2014, Jake. 
I feel pretty stupid now because about a year ago <laughs> I brought myself a GoPro and I got the headband to have it on my head and I wanted to do what I, I was going to call inject cam. So exactly what you were doing, but people see from my eye point of view, see my hands sort of in front of me and I could, you know, talk through what I'm doing rather than someone pointing a phone at me and not really understanding what I'm seeing. But it didn't work because the GoPro's resolution is too, too poor indoors. So <laughs> and it, and it, fish it, eyes, failed, it failed before it started. And it fish eyes things as well a little bit. Yeah, like distort a little exactly, bit. exactly. Yeah. But um, I, th I think, you know, what, what you did is absolutely incredible. But then, but then you also used other technologies as well. Yeah, then I decided that, um, that to move forward. So my, my kind of theory was that, okay, remote teaching is great. You know, um, Google Ask was confirming that you could be remote to people but connect people. And that was a story that I tried to capture in that kind of uh, project. Then I thought, would it be great if you were a medical student, for example, somewhere in a lower middle-income country and you could almost transport yourself to another, another place? So then we used virtual reality a couple of years later uh, to do, um, again, a world's first VR operation. So what we did then, we uh, got a, actually a bunch of GoPro cameras, actually. <laughs> uh, right. And we put into a, a, a stack, um, so that a 3D printed stack uh, arrangement in different directions. You could create 360 video, for example, uh, piece it all together. In those days, it was quite rudimentary. It took six different images, different angles, videos. You had to stick them together, glue them together. It took ages and hours. And then you had a full 360 kind of evaluation. We did that first time, and we put it on YouTube um, 360 platform. We're the first to do that almost. And now that looked really good. It's, it's really exciting. You can put yourself in a 3D headset and you can be in that operating theater. But then said, okay, what about doing a live operation in 360? Which again was really pushing the boundary of what was possible at the time. So we worked with a company called Matavision and my own company, Medical Realities. We um, got a camera and we put it into the operating theater, perched just next to uh, me above the patient, for example, in the middle of the operating theater. And we streamed live. We then allow people to access that feed through just a, um, a headset. And it could be as simple as a Google Cardboard. And the Google Cardboard, for those that know, is a $5 cardboard headset with two lenses, put a smartphone in, and then you can be in this immersive uh, 360 environment. So again, we went live with this one. And this one went truly global. Um, we actually, the hospital itself engaged with me. We went through all the usual processes of governance and safety, et cetera, and all those things all the time. But we then purchased a hospital, can you imagine, uh, Jake, uh, about 2,000 of these Google Carpet headsets wow. with the Bart Health logo on it. <laughs> and we, put, we gave it to everyone in the hospital, um, nurses, pharmacists, whoever, to share the experience. Uh, and that operation was watched by 55,000 people in real time across wow. the globe in 360. Okay, which is really unusual for that kind of technology to have so much power. And the idea for me was to transport people into operating theatre. Okay, so the first bit, you're distant, but you're connected. Next bit, you actually bring people into your OR from anywhere around the world. And again, this went absolutely viral. Uh, I think uh, there's um, 55,000 people from 140 countries that were watching the operation. Can you imagine 140 countries? Yeah, and amazing. 4,000 included. So again, it showed the impact, the power of these technologies that are suddenly becoming available uh, to democratize education. Mm. Now, that was the key for me. Uh, so yeah, that was the next one. Then we went on to say, well, that's okay. That's great. That's quite, okay. It's, it's cheap for what it is. You know, Google Cardboard costs about $5. Smartphone is ubiquitous. Uh, and then you have the app that's free. So theoretically, it doesn't cost much to do this. But it requires a lot of infrastructure to make it work. 
I then played with social media. I thought, okay, you know, Facebook, Snapchat had been going for a few years. Uh, you've got Instagram. These, these platforms reach billions of people around the world on a daily basis. And they're free and easy to use. So then I thought, okay, how do I reach the audiences with these platforms? So I was in Bangladesh. I did some training out there and some humanitarian work. I thought I'd do a live operation on Facebook Live. <laughs> and then 10,000 people watched the operation in Bangladesh who wanted to learn um, about uh, laparoscopic surgery. And why I did that in Bangladesh was because of this. You forget. So Facebook has about two or three billion users, I think about two billion users on a monthly basis, active users. Uh, Bangladesh, interestingly, had the highest uptake, the quickest uptake to a million users in the world. Right. Basically, it went rampant. Yeah, it's the fastest country in the world to take up Facebook. It seemed the country was ready, wanted to connect with social media. So the medium that they were looking at, I use the same medium to turn around and say, here we are, we can train you in the same medium you're using now that is popular. That's why we did the experiment and it went well. But then I uh, remember the Snapchat spectacles came out. Now, I'm not a Snapchat fan. I, but, <laughs> but it's about being a fan. Right. Yeah. Um, if you look at it, it's okay. If you look at the Snapchat users at that time, of the 200 million users, um, uh, Jake and David, essentially uh, 70% were between the ages 17 and 25. Yeah. Now, you may think, at my age, why am I bothering with this stuff? You know, gosh, it's, I'm not that young anymore. <laughs> but those are the ages of my medical students, trainees. You've got to think about what they're experiencing. What is their life like? They're different to us. Generation Z is different. They've got different experiences, expectations. They're more digitally savvy, if you like. So I thought, okay, um, that's the age. So what can I do with Snapchat? So then we, the spectacles came out. Uh, and I managed to get a, one of the spectacles very early from America. I thought, okay, put it on. And I was figuring out how to Snapchat. Okay, it's these kind of small clips. Uh, you create my stories, as you know. I said, okay, what if I do a small operation, create a story around the operation. So, it, so this is a hernia operation. Um, it's a small lump in the groin that comes, uh, comes up with many people, often men, but we operate to push it back in again. So I thought this is a stand operation. Let me divide this into small clips of 10 or 15 seconds, which is yeah. what the spectacles allow you to do, and record those bits during the operation and push onto my story. I was really nervous about this. Having done the other two, getting sort of a global acclaim, I was really, um, I guess, apprehensive about this project because it's social media. Is this pushing the boundaries too far? A surgical operation live on a social media platform. So I, I picked 200 students. Uh, from my medical school. I said, look, can you uh, engage? This is my, uh, my, um, uh, my link to Snapchat stories, et cetera, and tell me how it all goes. So we put the glasses on, did the operation, and I had students clicking every 15 seconds, pushing out certain points, um, et cetera. And we had engagement from students, and we were talking and chatting continuously with the moderator in the room. And so then I, I paused to go a deep gasp. Kind of, I think we gushed out. I wonder how this is going to be portrayed. And then, of course, um, one of my colleagues in America picked it up, uh, who's a writer. He wrote an article about it. And then it went absolutely viral. I, I couldn't believe the impact that that one operation had. This was then um, shared widely through all the social media platforms. You name it on YouTube. Now this, you know, Mashable, you know, they all kind of got involved. Um, and purely because I think on uh, one day after I did the operation, uh, one of the editors of Time magazine phoned me up literally at home and said, I'm coming on Sunday morning to cover your story. I think it's fascinating. Can you share it with me? This was obviously unexpected. So I shared the story with him on Sunday morning. He pushed it out to uh, Time 
uh, magazine, and then it went absolutely viral. And over the course of time, that operation was shared over 2 million times. Wow. And it reached about 55 million people through all the social media platforms. And, and so it was showing that actually uh, the story was around social media could help support education, improve access, that kind of thing, which made sense to me. It's a free platform. It has huge traction. Uh, I think those are the examples where the, um, the kind of the owners of the companies, whether Mark Zuckerberg uh, or, uh, or Spiegel, have said that actually these are the, what, this is the reason why we create these platforms, be to engage in different ways, of course. So um, I think it demonstrated uh, again, the power connectivity, but using different platform. Uh, and I was always apprehensive about u- the use of this in real time. Yeah. Also, when we do this, um, we make sure that we get patient consent, uh, that they understand exactly what they're uh, doing for us. We ensure there's governance and safety around these procedures. Uh, I wouldn't take risks either. So it's more of a public to understand that we go through this understanding thinking before we do these kind of projects to make it as safe as possible. But the end result, was a success. It showed that actually the value uh, of these, these projects. And the last one we did was um, uh, around avatars. So I thought, okay, that's great. We've done all these things. What about holograms and avatars, right? <laughs> in an operation at the Royal London and have different people come to operate theatre, not in virtual reality, but actually almost real, like the avatars of holograms. So we did an operation using the HoloLens 2, which is a headset. And during operation, I think it was 2017 or 18, uh, November 2017, uh, I was doing the operation. During it, I put the headset on. And then in my field of view, in the operating theatre, there appeared two other surgeons. <laughs> right. One, one from, uh, uh, actually three. One from America, uh, the US. One from Mumbai, uh, the Tatamora Cancer Hospital in India. And the other one in London. And we all converged. And what we did, I put all the images in, the scans of the patient, the, all the, uh, the kind of the, the scans, the images, results. We all can look at them in to- in together, walk around, pick them up, turn around, talk to one another. It was actually, of course, almost like engaging in an MDT, a multi-discipline uh, team meeting, but in virtual reality. So this was the first time that we connected three people, three continents, three time zones in real time as the avatars and holograms. So those are the kind of things that I see the story developing. It's about being more connected. And actually, those kind of ideas were way ahead of their time, mm. you may think. And I might have thought to be a bit of a maverick and pushing the boundaries, thinking a little crazy sometimes. But the great thing is, in 2021 and 20, with the pandemic, everyone's looking for virtual experiences. How do we connect people virtually because of the pandemic? So thankfully, I got it right four or five years ago. I knew that was this, where we had to go towards because... Um, we need to connect people around the world. Uh, traveling is expensive. I do a lot of traveling. Uh, and traveling is really expensive. It's time inefficient. Uh, it's not using resources very well. And how do we overcome, and you know, you go talk about climate change and et cetera, et cetera. How do we overcome the burden of traveling? And now we've seen with Zoom, with Teams and people now connecting, this is where we need to be. So in some ways, that story that I've been sharing with you is more relevant now than it was five, six years ago, because society's moved on and they're all thinking about how we experience virtual concerts, virtual education, virtual learning, virtual experiences. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm thankful 
that I've kind of got it right. And someone said to me the other day, actually, um, now that you've predicted the future, what's next for you? Right? <laughs> so now I'm thinking about what the next steps are going oh. to be in the next five or 10 years. Well, I was suggesting maybe it's time for some TikTok. I, I, can, I think that would, <laughs> surely that's next. But no, but seriously, yeah. what I did want to ask you, and Jake sort of alluded to, to it in his question was, and I'm thinking how to ask this diplomatically. Um, normally when someone, as you described, is a maverick, you're doing things different, you're breaking new ground, you're, you're challenging the status quo. Generally, those people come under scrutiny. There's the establishment that want things to remain as they are. You see it all the time, particularly in, in the sciences. You know, People want to maintain the status quo. And if anyone moves outside of that understood paradigm, it can be quite challenging. How did that go with you? And did you encounter any of that, that sort of, I guess, backlash or, or sort of negative, uh, negative feelings towards what you were doing? Yeah, and that's a really good question, David. I think, look, I think when you're at that, um, the forefront of change, there's often a lot of resistance, as yeah. you quite rightly have suggested. And medicine itself is steeped in tradition. Yeah, we don't want to change. Um, and in fact, a lot of people uh, are thinking, you know, they're very comfortable with what they've got uh, and how they're behaving, how they're working. Uh, and so, certainly, this. Um, so there's those. There are a lot of people who are supporting innovation. Great, great idea, wonderful. And so the vast majority will really support it, of course. But you also have to balance the criticism from it all. And I, I, with these cases, I often look at the, the criticisms uh, much more than I look at the kind of people who are supporting my work. So, okay, what is the criticism here? What is it something that we could do better? Listen to that because I think it's really important to engage uh, with your critics and say, okay, look, okay, what's the concerns that you have? Uh, discuss that with them, be intelligent about it, be upfront, and actually trying to convert them to your way of thinking almost. Of course, there's some people out there who just di didn't want um, this kind of work to, to happen. Um, but over the course of time, I found that 99% of people were very engaged and supportive, very small minority that were supportive. But my aim was to make sure every, bring everyone on that direction with you. So what we're seeing now is a change. People's perceptions are changing. People understand that actually we've got to move on and do things differently. And now six years along the line, we are getting to the stage where more healthcare workers are thinking about um, changing their own work uh, and pathways. How I managed it initially was just to be very sensible. Um, and every time I did these new projects, I then paused. I didn't care on doing further work very quickly. I said, let's just pause for a second. Let's review what we've done. Let's look at the implications. What's the, what's the feedback being like? What have I learned from this? What am I learning about these new ideas and technologies? So really being sensible uh, and taking a natural pause at that point before they embark again on, on something else or further work. So I think it's being deliberate, being sensible, being engaging, being honest, as always. Because um, ultimately, you're there for patient care and to improve patient outcomes. It's not about you or, or what you're trying to do. It's trying to improve access to education, improve uh, the patient's uh, experience. So I think that's kind of what we did uh, over the course of time, and that really helped. I remember coming to Australia, actually, uh, a year after the Google Glass operation. I was in um, Brisbane <laughs> at the International Association of Surgical Societies uh, conference uh, in Queensland. <clears throat> um, and um, so I was at the university there. I gave a talk. And I remember speaking to uh, the president of the Australian College of Surgeons at the time. And they were, um, uh, and he was very good, very supportive, talking about this. But he, he said to me that Australian surgeons are very conservative at that point, Chaffee. You're, you're challenging us <laughs> to think differently, right? We're a frank conversation about conservatism, about being pushing forward. And, so, and it's a balance between making sure it was safe, driving forwards understanding where you are in the context of surgical practice. So it's always, and of course you have to be credible to do all this kind of thing. So it's about all those things and managing the expectations, David, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. and being sensible. 
Uh, and thankfully, over the course of time, people now understood that what I did before was just early in its adoption. Um, you have to be brave. Uh, don't get me wrong. You have, to have, you have to be quite strong doing these kind of things because you, you will say, if it all goes wrong, then people will obviously criticize you very quickly. Yeah. While it's going well, people behind you, supporting you. That takes one thing to go wrong for something all that to come down very quickly. So I was very aware acutely of the tenuous balance between success and failure of these things. My role was to just drive forward and ensure that we take that journey and make sure people come with you on that journey as well. Now, I promised our listeners that we would somehow relate this to aesthetics, and I've sort of got a hundred things going through my head as you were saying uh, all of the sort of steps through the, the various technologies and the way you streamed your operations. So, you know, from an injector's perspective, you know, one of the things that we definitely struggle with is educating new injectors, just like inje- educating new surgeons, h- how to how to do things, how to see things, and uh, and scaling that. Just like you said, it's expensive to get you know five or ten people in a room from all over the country, get a trainer there, and then you're using all this product, which is expensive, and finding a model who's willing and so forth. So, I can see a time uh, where a lot of that technology is just transferred to all medical specialties, including injectables. Um, definitely things like virtual reality where you know my my stupid little amateur attempt to to showcase what the ejector can see well that could easily be translated into a wearable like the google glass or snapchat glasses something like that and it could actually be done in a really fun way where you know millions of people could um you know interact and, and we could all learn together at the same time and learn from the americans and europeans and and all you know it'd just be you know, the scale makes it so much interesting compared to, you know, three people in a room in Brisbane, for example. Well, you know, even the discussions that we've been having with various aesthetic doctors and practitioners around the world and the questions that we've had, you know, how do you approach different facial structures? How are you approaching different, you know, different ethnicities and skin types and, and what's driving, you know, certain ideals in different parts of the world? So that's just even been in this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, and we've touched on that in the last couple of podcasts. And then the other thing I was thinking is management of emergencies and complications. Again, both for surgery and, uh, you know, for injectables, but I'm going to transport myself back to surgery now. So I remember many nights when I needed to speak to the consultant, it's three in the morning, you really don't want to call him because you're thinking, shit, he's going to get pissed with me and he's going to wake up grumpy tomorrow and he'll be telling everyone this guy's rubbish. (laughs) But actually what you need is almost that virtual surgeon or the hologram surgeon who is awake in his own time zone, who might be available in a bit more of a fresh state, if you want to put it that way, to actually transport himself into the room through the hologram and actually look at what you're looking at rather than trying yeah. to do it over the phone. <laughs> so yeah. wouldn't it be great to do that? Uh, we've all struggled and I get caught up middle of the night and I get grumpy, I have to go in. Right? And so, um, so avoiding that, you could just, you know, put on a screen or a headset and just appear and look at someone's shoulder and point to a few things, for example, absolutely possible. But back to your question around <clears throat> the aesthetics. So although you may not see relevant, it is entirely relevant. So let's talk about um, your aesthetics, your courses that you run, for example. Now imagine creating a face um, that's um, in augmented reality. Yeah. So you can literally put a headset on, see the face. Then all the areas would come up, light up very quickly. But whereas you could inject, for example, what the effect would come. You could experiment with injections and see what happened to this kind of artificial patient that you've kind of created, for example. The interaction, 
where the angles, you can do 360 degrees, for example, rotate. And so at the moment, as you've said already, people have to travel to go to courses, you have to bring models in. Um, it's expensive for a lot of people. Yeah. And what about scaling up in a bigger way where you can actually create something like that and create gamification around it, certification, CME points, CPD, for example. So ultimately, at some point, um, all these courses would go online in a virtual kind of environment. Uh, and then that'd be a different model, a different way of, of teaching people remotely. And last thing, of course, is to be together. So I'm just going to be launching a set of series of lectures, but in virtual reality. So my students will join me from around the world in VR as their avatars. I've got a room set up for them as my kind of teaching room. And I'll be, I can teach them uh, remotely. So I'm trying to pick about four or five people from each continent. So they can all join us and we'll have a global lessons, but with our holograms and avatars in VR, right? So again, imagine that in aesthetics. You could actually say, okay, well, we've come together in this environment, uh, share models and things about learning. Um, so it's still coming along, but I think aesthetics is, I think, really suitable for a lot of these technologies. And maybe it hasn't exploited, been exploited enough. Uh, and maybe that's something you can think about as you go forward, both of you. Yeah, new business venture, Jay. <laughs> Well, I had the privilege actually in 2018, Allegan, who, who make Botox and, and a few other products, they took us to Singapore for a training event. And it was the first time that I'd worn a HoloLens. I can't remember who makes it. Um, the, who, that's right. Yeah. And uh, it, it was amazing. They're developing an app, just like you said, you can see a face, spin it around, but with your fingers sort of virtually in the mm -hmm. air. And you can peel back the layers of the face and, and look at the different structures, learn anatomy, uh, talk about injection points. It's a bit similar to what you said, Shafi, but maybe a little bit more rudimentary. So I can mm -hmm. see a day where, like you said, we'd all just sit at home wherever put on our hollow lens and and inject and or, or at least learn to inject mm. it's quite it's quite interesting i was going to ask shafi you know you spoke about the fact that all these people were learning from you and i'm assuming that every country has got its own nuances and way they do things and i know that different things are treated differently around the world from your perspective was there much that you learned from talking to people and getting questions from people that you ordinarily wouldn't speak to, got questions from, who'd maybe learnt slightly different techniques or had come at things from, from different perspective. I, I'm curious as to whether there was there's learning there for you as well. Yeah, learning is a two-way process. You're never too old or too ugly to learn, as you know, both of you. And actually, these experiences teach you an awful lot. You know, surgery and medicine is continual development of your skills and, and appraisal. And you learn from people around the world. So one of the things I do learn about is global aspects of healthcare. So different experience of different people, different styles, um, uh, different ways of operating, different standards, for example. And then all about all of those things. Uh, and, uh, and the other thing, of course, uh, traveling widely has really improved my knowledge of healthcare systems and how they work. And actually, there's a lot to learn from various parts of the world uh, about how they manage large populations, how they manage public health, how they manage um, uh, even the uh, practice of surgery. For example, so I was in China, I went to Guangzhou, uh, Shanghai, Beijing, and uh, Chengdu, uh, visiting the, the surgical centers there. And what that taught me was scale of, of practice, for example. Yeah. So if you look at, say, Chengdu, you have some like eight or nine or even 10,000 beds. You can't <laughs> imagine how big it is. Wow. Uh, and, each, and each morning, um, they have 10,000 ophthalmology appointments. Yeah. Can you <laughs> imagine? All in one morning. And even look at the bed base, they have, um, so we have a large hospital in London, we have about, I don't know, 800 beds or so, but we have 20, 30 beds for surgery. 
they had two, uh, they had 400 beds just for current cancer patients. Can you imagine the scale? So you're looking at how they manage scale, how they automate some of the work processes, similar to India and other countries that have large populations, lots to learn from these. And also, they use technology. You can go to some pockets of China, for example, where you go into hospital, it's automated. You have a smart card, everything's by a smart card, including picking up your medicine through a robot at the end, that kind of stuff. It's all automated. Even the telemedicine platform is enormous. You know, if you look at Ping An, one of the insurance companies, a year ago before the pandemic, they had 300 million users. Can you imagine? Wow. So and then you go to the Middle East and look at how they're trying to in- incorporate technology. And I work with Abu Dhabi government as their advisor, and they are uh, promoting technology innovation rapidly into their hospitals across their 40 healthcare institutions uh, and investing almost four to six billion dollars into innovation, for example. And then you see Africa, parts of South America that have worked. You see actually they're leapfrogging other parts of society because they think actually we can do better, we can invest heavily, but do things differently. And if you look at Africa, for example, you know, Africa, you look at the country, uh, the continent as a whole, and uh, Rwanda is great in bringing telemedicine, bringing in digital health already way before its time when we think about it, but they're leapfrogging other parts of the world. Mobile money, you know, we're still using some uh, cash still in the UK and other parts. In parts of Africa, they have no money. It's all automated on a smartphone. They're way ahead of their time. So learning from the experiences of how society is working is essential. Uh, and so that's the, what I've learned by doing this work that I've done, by allowing me to travel widely, is adopt ideas to change your mindset almost and when i come back i always tell people you know you've got to think exponentially what you've got to change your mind from being what's called linear thinking to becoming exponential thinkers now i'll give you an example of that if people think about linear linear thoughts if i say to someone in the audience okay take 30 steps with me and we just walk in a linear fashion we will get to about 30 yards away we know where we'd be ending up in that distance if i said to that same person now let's take 30 exponential steps together which is the way that war is being powered, how far do you think we'd get? It won't be 30 yards. It won't be 30 miles. We've gone around the planet about 26 times. So it's that pace of change, the exponential thinking, that's so essential for everyone to understand now because that's where we're heading towards. If you incorporate those ideas and that kind of thinking, then you can see what the art of possible is uh, in all walks of life, and, and including uh, medicine, for example. So that's why I tell the audiences about thinking differently, challenging. The last thing I always say to people is to challenge dogma and tradition. So we're stuck in our ways. We don't want to change. We're very happy with what we've got, our lives, whatever. But actually, if you accept what's going on around you constantly, you're accepting mediocrity because you're not changing, you're not challenging. And so I ask people, who wants to be mediocre in their lifetime? And no one ever says yes, I'm <laughs> mediocre. They want to be better than they are. Therefore, challenge every process, challenge everything you do every day. How can you do it differently? How can you improve it, for example? And therefore, then you're going to make sure that you're, you're moving ahead. So those are the two things. Be an exponential, exponential thinker on one side uh, and don't accept mediocrity by challenging uh, your own processes. In all of your travels, um, Shafi, have you sort of decided that there's one country that's doing it the best? And I guess my second question is, is there something that unifies the barriers to doing good healthcare in all of the countries, or is it just money? Uh, okay, so the, the interesting thing is, when you go around the world, there's one unifying theme. No one's got any more money. Yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> extra money. That's the unification of all the countries. So everyone's got a limited budget, the GDP is going up year on year, everyone's got limited resources. So what I'm learning is, how do some countries use that limited resources in a different way? What's that smart way of thinking? 
Because what we're where we are at the moment in healthcare around the world is that we can't keep afford to throw money to healthcare because it's a bottomless pit. Mm. Aging population, more chronic diseases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they've had to use the same money, but in a smarter fashion. So what we're seeing, people moving care into the community, now using telemedicine, remote care, remote monitoring, allowing the secondary primary care to expand much more rapidly. Um, and reducing the number of patients that might require inpatient care or expensive care, for example, going for what's called well from sick care to well care, maintaining well-being and health is where we're heading towards. So all the countries I've been to, each one does diff- things differently. They have smaller populations or bigger populations. They have different uh, implications of healthcare problems to deal with, yeah? Different resource settings. But it's understanding how they're becoming some of the challenges, yeah, uniquely to their own population, which has been interesting. It has to be guided to your population, of course. It has to be consistent with what's required, what the disease process are like, what the demographics are like, and how you manage it, what you can learn from other countries. So each country has got amazing qualities, doing amazing things. They also have barriers, of course. They have limitations in what they do. Uh, and it's understanding, taking the best bits almost out of all of those. Okay, well, these are really good ideas to transport into the UK or other parts. And similarly, transport our ideas to other parts of the world. So I'd say there's good in every hospital, every healthcare system. Uh, there's no perfect system. Otherwise, everyone would accommodate that. And there's the cost element, of course. How do you reimburse? Is it insurance versus uh, a, a national provider? There's so many issues around healthcare that need unpicking, unpacking almost to make it work. But it's understanding that the, 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 uh, the, the possibilities, the frailties of a system and how maybe with technology going forward, we can actually add value. So, yeah, so it's been an interesting uh, experience. Mm. Let's talk about your company, uh, Medical Realities. Um, tell us, what's it, what's it all about? Where did the sort of idea come from? How long ago did you start it? And what are you guys hoping to achieve? So, look, yeah, go back a few years. When I was doing this kind of virtual reality uh, training, uh, we formed a company uh, called Medical Realities. And this was... a uh, uh, a medical education uh, immersive tech company using what's uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. So we have a platform now um, that we you can actually access on the VR platforms, the Oculus system, the HC Vive and others. So you can actually immerse yourself in an environment and you can then train yourself. And what we did over the last few years, we recorded about 100 operations in 360. Yeah, And we actually recorded those operations in... Uh, the US, Italy, the UK, uh, in Africa, in Bangladesh, and India, for example. We went around the world recording these high-quality VR operations. And then we put them into the VR headset, so you can actually navigate through each part of the operation and watch it and train yourself. We've also then gone to undergraduate training uh, in terms of what's called OSCEs, yeah. you know, Objective Structural Examinations. We put those into the headset now and other modalities. So it becomes a whole learning experience within VR. The idea is to augment your current uh, training and teaching using VR. So you can spend half an hour to an hour in the environment and learn lots of different procedures, whether it's gallstones, disease, or cholestectomies, or hernias, whatever. Also train yourself in the exams of the OSCEs. So what we're seeing last year is that there's a huge need for this now. A lot of people say, well, look, medical students last year were not uh, going face-to-face. They were at home being taught on Zoom and Microsoft Teams, lacking clinical exposure. Of course, that's what they're for. Clinical exposure is what they need. So this was a happy medium. They were still doing some VR training, learning. I see a lot of these technologies now are being embraced by many medical schools around the world. So Medical Realities is a VR company We've been around for about five years now, and we're working with many partnerships now uh, around delivering 
higher quality content in VR. <clears throat> and so I think um, if you asked me a year or two ago, people weren't ready for that kind of thing. It was a new concept, new idea, pushing uh, people to adopt new uh, technologies. But now we see it's an open door, people are engaging. That's when you need to think differently. This virtual training is really relevant. And the idea is to shorten the training, make it quicker, make it better. And again, uh, take away some of the, you know, if you think about the costs element of training, I think it's quite expensive mm. being in place, having building. Uh, and we've seen in 2020 uh, how people can do remote learning just as well. And the new hybrid model in the future will be uh, on-site learning and virtual learning, I'm sure, as we go forward. And how do you create that um, kind of curriculum? So that's what we've been doing for a number of years. And um, yeah, so we've been very pleased that we're at the forefront of these kind of education platforms. And now hopefully we'll expand much more rapidly as 2021 comes through and people really now wanting these experiences. Shafi, what's the difference between VR and AR, augmented reality and virtual reality? Really good question. Let's, let's go through that. Okay, so there's actually more than just that. There's VR, there's AR, there's MR, and there's XR. Okay, let <laughs> right. just all those four to your audience. So <clears throat> virtual reality is one in the spectrum. We put headset on, and you can't see in front of you because you're all enclosed in this virtual space. You can have images, videos, whatever. That's virtual reality. Mm -hmm. Augmented reality is the other side of the equation where you put a glasses on or headset. And you can see around you. You can walk around, you can see around you, but you put in information overlays, like a heads-up display as a fighter pilot or indeed heads-up display on a car that comes up on your windscreen. Mm -hmm. That's augmented reality, adding different images or something as an overlay onto your real-world uh, interface. Yeah. In the middle of those two, it's something called mixed reality. It's a bit of both, okay? And so you've got AR, VR, and then you've got mixed reality. All of those three combined are called extended reality. The word <laughs> we use now is extended reality. I hope that explains to the audience those kind of terminologies. That's really important to get it right. So give us an example of XR. Like what, what would you be doing or seeing or, tra or a training example? So XR covers all of them. So it could be any of those three elements, yeah? So as you go forward for, for training, uh, say you pick up the HoloLens, for example, which is a mixed reality device. Uh, I did an experiment recently, that, like an example, in uh, October. What happened was our students weren't getting clinical placements uh, because they're at home. So I put the HoloLens on and I did this, uh, I'm doing, doing some training sessions. But I was on the ward using the HoloLens and uh, doing my ward round, seeing patients, Okay. Um, in that whole lens, I had all my images of x-rays and CT scans and blood tests for each patient as I was going around. In the lecture theatre, uh, you remember the old lecture theatre, uh, mm -hmm. the Perry Lecture Theatre at uh, Barts, which is a 400-seated uh, kind of auditorium. We invited 70 students in, social distance, sat in different parts of the auditorium. I had a moderator in the, uh, at the bottom and big screens. So students were watching me going around the ward in mixed reality seeing the patients, they were taking histories, they were helping me examine the patients as it was the normal ward round, teaching ward round, uh, Jake. We went around six, seven patients, they're watching, interacting with me, showing images, getting moderation. At the end, we finished. And so for them, it was a great way of getting clinical exposure despite being non-face-to-face. -face. Yeah, so showing amazing. me what's possible. Yeah. yeah. How are patients responding to this? I mean, obviously you've got your patients that are, you know, there and having the procedures done on them, but in terms of, you know, just the feedback from the general populace in terms of what this technology is doing, like I guess people outside of, you know, your colleagues in the establishment, what are the general public and patients thinking? Yeah, it's been amazing. I think we underestimate 
how our patients want help and support. And I've been really reassured and really thankful to the patients who, when I approach them, say, look, this is what we're trying to do. Uh, I'm trying to teach using Google Glass or VR, or whatever, explain to them at length and to improve standards of learning. None of them will say no. They're really supportive of education and helping the next generation of people. And patients are amazing. You know, they're offering um, their, um, their, almost their operations or procedures for the world to see. And they, and they understand the implications of it all. I'll go through very carefully. But I'm just completely uh, almost overwhelmed by the support, what they want to do. Uh, I'll share, let me share a story with you, which is really interesting. When I um, was in the VR operation, uh, first time ever it was done in the world. It was a cancer operation on the patient that I'd seen. I spoke to the family a number of times. They're very supportive. I think the one family member was a teacher and said, I'd love to do this with you, um, uh, Mr. Ahmed, because you'll be teaching and that's what I have a passion for. Anyway, so I did the operation, um, which went well. I was very pleased. Um, and obviously we had a big audience on that day. And I came out uh, of the operating theatre into the main ward I met the um, the mother, so the, the the spouse, so the wife of the patient I was treating, and also the daughter. And I said to them, um, "So it's all gone well, thank you." They said, "No, we know. We watched it." <laughs> so <laughs> they'd watched their own family go through a live operation in VR, and I was just my I was gobsmacked. I thought, "Really?" I said, "How did you find it?" And they said, "You know what? We really valued you normally." Uh, when you have a relative going for an operation, you're stuck in a room, you don't know what's going on, you have no idea what's the process, and you're anxious. As we're watching, we're relieved, we're reassured, it's all going well, we're pleased what we saw, and it was a good hand. So was, I never expected that kind of conversation. And what it taught me was we underestimate our patients. We're very paternalistic about them. We know best, this is what's right. We're driven by paternalism. Actually engage with them. They're much more supportive. They want to engage. Look at this with telemedicine of the last year. Who would have thought patients would be okay at breaking bad news with cancer diagnosis on a telephone or telemedicine? Mm. We never would have done it a year ago. But they are much more amenable. They understand the reason. They understand what needs to change. So I think we've underestimated the power of our patients, what they want. And now they're getting care at home, at their convenience, on a telemedicine platform. Yet we've been pushing clinics for the last 50 to 100 years, saying this is the right way of doing things, right? It wasn't. It clearly wasn't. So I think patients are amazing, and, and you have to make sure they go on the journey with you, yeah? Because they are the most important part of it. Their safety, the impact for them, the experience has to be the most important thing in your mind. Whenever I was doing these procedures or these kind of new techniques, it's put in the center. Okay, how do we ensure your safety? How do we improve your experience and outcome? If you can't do that, there's no point doing anything else because it has to be implicit in what we do. So, so back to your question, I think we underestimate them, bring them on that journey with us, you know, take them on, uh, uh, bring them uh, on board, and they will support you, no, no question. And so that's been my message always. Uh, don't underestimate patients. They're just, they're just much more supportive than you ever imagined. And help support them. They want to share your experiences as well as you do. And it's, it's a combination. I think I've seen another example of, of, of just what you're saying. You... you... <laughs> You're crazy, chef. You, there was a robot that was acting as you, going on the ward round. So, so, so you were talking through the robot. He was R two D two. Yeah, but you were doing a ward round, and yeah. I remember. I think you, it was just a, a standard sort of post-operative thing. How are you going? How's your pain, etc. Wasn't you know? You didn't need to do anything hands-on, but it was a conversation. And I remember they interviewed the patient after, and they said, "How did you find that? Did did you find that weird?" And they said, "Well." 
yes, it's weird having a robot come and whatever, but because it was Mr. Ahmed, I immediately felt that rapport that even though he can't be here, I really felt reassured that he cares about me and, and he's here. And, and I like the, the, the technology. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, it will take about a day to get used to, but if that became the norm, why, why wouldn't you do that? It, it was quite interesting. So again, yeah, the, patients embrace these things. Yeah, it's, it's the beam system. And you're right, Jake. Look, um, I was on a little robot. It goes, you can control it on your smartphone or your computer and you can walk around, you can <laughs> drive around the walls and things, right? So when I did it four or five years ago when I first started, of course, it was different. People saying, oh, okay, we're not sure about this and I did it all. And, and it's okay. I did uh, outpatient clinics not by not being there. And I always felt that I should be more remote. I could do things more remote, yeah? And of course, last year, we've seen that more remote working. When I did last year during the pandemic, the hospital was up to fine with it. It was normal. You know, why didn't we do it before, for example, right? <laughs> so, and patients themselves straight away say, it's great, really enjoy it, why not? It takes them about a minute to get adjusted to that. That's you on the screen and you're coming, but they're seeing you. You're the consultant, you're given the opinion. Um, so they, they prefer that. Now, isn't that better? So you could be on a beach, I don't know, in, in Australia, uh, doing a ward round in London, for example, right? But you're seeing the, the, the most experienced clinician there and he's seeing on a daily basis. So yeah. it changed the way that we work. As we go forward now in society, work will change. We're more at home. Uh, working from home is much more common, more part-time working. So these are the ideas that actually, why couldn't you do a ward round from home? Yeah. yeah? Why don't you go physically an hour to work, an hour back, just do this? Make, so I think the way that society is going to be geared up for work in the future will be different. And these are the kind of things that might think actually, well, this is a way of doing things. Yeah. So I'm, still, I'm yet to do a wall drive on beach. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't done that on purpose just yet. I yeah. think that might be too, too difficult for you to understand, but I will do it one day. <laughs> I'm sitting here listening to all of this amazing um, things that you're doing with technology and I can't help but think about people like Elon Musk and AI and you know, I've got a car now that, that sort of drives itself to a certain extent. Um, where do you think AI fits into this? And, and I guess in terms of making you guys as surgeons and doctors and caregivers more efficient, um, as you said, helping you be in places that you physically can't be in. But in terms of using, I guess, AI to help you, I guess, take even a greater quantum leap forward. So AI is the great promise that we have. And I, I call AI, it's the kind of the hype, the hope, and the reality. When we first came up with AI a few years ago, that was going to change the world, it's going to do everything for us, amazing, AI, blah, blah. And then we had the kind of the hope around that. Now we're facing reality of what it can achieve. AI is an amazing bit of technology. It's AI and what's called deep machine learning. And there's no question it's going to power healthcare in the future. So it's going to work silently in the background. So whether it's analyzing images for CT scans or x-rays, it's analyzing pathology results or automating your, uh, your kind of your experience of interacting with a, a doctor, a chatbot, or a question answer kind of thing, it's going to be there, all working its magic. So it's not going to replace doctors. Many people did understand that. People get worried about AI replacing doctors, overtaking. No, no, no. It's augmenting, supporting, assisting our, our work. It'll make doctors even better to do the job they're trained for, take away some of the burden of work they don't need to do that can be done by AI. So I think AI has that great example. And if you go in the future, let's talk about an example. When you first go, to, um, uh, if you have symptoms and you want to see a doctor, the first point of contact might be an AI chatbot. We put in your questions, they ask you what, how you're feeling, and you return the answers back and forth. And that will give you a, a way of, of triaging your symptoms. Okay, this is what we think you've got, given what you've told us. This is what we think you should do. So that eliminates a lot of people going to a doctor face-to-face, -face, taking away that 
uh, that resource. Yeah, getting rid of a lot of things that can be managed remotely, and then only seeing people that need to be seen. And then, for example, once you've done that, you can then be triaged into the hospital or primary care or medicine, whatever. Uh, and then, of course, AI is used for data analysis. That's the key, isn't it? Whether we're looking at patient records, we're looking at outcomes, all the measurements we take from patients on a regular basis is how do you use AI to make that much more precise? How do you, what's called personalized medicine? So each patient could get personalized care that's specific for them rather than somebody else generically. So that AI has these great advantages. Image is amazing, of course. If you look at X-ray CTs, uh, a lot of those images now can be um, uh, diagnosed by uh, AI. So I work with a company called Imira. This is an AI company. Uh, I'm one of the advisors. What we've done is we've annotated uh, tens of thousands of X-rays, plain X-rays of the, the skeleton. And we've put in all the, the fractures, the arthritis, all that kind of thing. As so we look at it now, it can predict what you see on X-ray immediately. So imagine you go to a, a, an accident emergency department, yeah, and you have an X-ray taken. Immediately there, I'll say to you, oh, I spotted abnormality there. You've got this, okay? And with a millisecond, it's in your smartphone as diagnosis or raises a flag of concern. And hopefully, you won't miss as many diagnoses. So it will improve accuracy, make it much faster to get diagnosis. And I remember, I, had, I remember last year, year before, I had a bit of a cough for a while. And so I went to see my GP. He ordered a chest X-ray for me. So I had to go book my chest X-ray. A week later, I had the X-ray. A week later, I got the results. So it's two weeks of concern about having symptoms and having a result. Imagine if the X-ray was done immediately with the date with the results automatically on your phone saying it's abnormal. It reassures people immediately. It uh, adds um, efficiency and it flags up problems. So that's what AR will have. Uh, huge, um, um, I think, um, uh, impact in how we yeah. manage a lot of the things we do all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about human error, you hear about these things in hospitals sometimes where someone goes in, they get, you know, they go in for, to have their appendix removed and they get a leg amputated or, you know, so these weird things happen because of human error, people working long shifts. So I, I, you know, I take your point. I think you're exactly right that you'll see this meshing more of, of, of human, the human brain combined with the efficiency of technology where, you know, you might need nuance, you know, there'll be a scan where you, you need the nuance, you need someone, a human brain that can uh, understand the nuances of what they're looking at that a machine might miss. And then in the other way around, you know, you might be tired, you've worked, you know, long shifts and you might've missed something and the machine picks it up. So I think you're right. It's that the combination, which is going to take medicine to another level. Definitely. Now it would be weird to, have this conversation about how sexy and cool tech is going to help us when we've just <laughs> gone through or still going through a pandemic where mm. the healthcare system, particularly in the UK, has been completely overwhelmed in, in many circumstances. And I know, Shafi, you were involved in advising the government um, on sort of preparedness. You helped sort of um, plan things for that 4,000 bed hospital that was ultimately, thank God, never used in, in any sort of great capacity. But where do you see the failings that we have now and how do we translate the technology that we've discussed into that? That's yeah, a, a really good question. So I think um, we've learned a lot over the last year um, from the pandemic. What we have seen, the, the positives are, we've seen how technology has been used very quickly to support the healthcare system, whether it's creating 3D printed PP masks, for example, right? Very quickly people created um, a set of masks and other uh, things and um, shields. 
um, we saw people create very quickly the uh, ventilators, the CPAP machines. Remember UCL with McLaren racing car, mm-hmm. uh, creating a venturi system, a new kind of um, very cheap um, ventilator, which was necessary for around the world very quickly. So what we saw very, very early was the collaboration between healthcare and industry partners, research departments, which I think is going to be a legacy going forward for how we translate very fast these ideas into clinical practice. We've seen the lessening of regulations. So people say, actually, it's okay to do this. The regulations change appropriately and adopt that. The work for the uh, Nightingale, I was just one small member of a big team, of course, um, of the XL that was converted into the Nightingale Hospital, having 4,000 beds or so. Uh, and so, again, that was done at pace within three or four weeks. It was a new hospital created with beds, with connectivity, with electronic health records, uh, with sensors. Uh, and again, it showed how that collaboration between the military, between um, industry partners, uh, like Vodafone, who I work with, and others, could come very quickly and make this work. So it showed that we can do these things very fast. Of course, there have been many mistakes made, not just in the UK, but around the world. Um, it's, and we weren't ready for the pandemic. I know parts of uh, Southeast Asia were, you know, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and China, they're all better managing they've seen different viruses come in, affect them before, and they were well prepared. So preparedness will be one thing going forward, that as we go forward and the other pandemics, is we'll be much more prepared for next time it happens with the understanding. Um, we've seen the kind of this test track and trace the apps. They haven't really worked as well as it could. I think they were rolled out in a different way. They can be done much better uh, in a way that we could track the uh, illness much, uh, the, the virus better uh, and engage much better with that. So that, again, didn't work as well as it could have done. But what you've seen is these snippets of things that work really well, how we've managed. Look at vaccine development, uh, both of you. You know, in, in the past, vaccine development would taken five to ten years. Uh, the quickest vaccine ever to develop was about five, six years, in fact. Yeah. So but in one year, they produced the vaccine, collected the data, rolled it out. If, so if you the, the, the pandemic came out in March, well, if it had begun last year, by December, we're vaccinating people in the UK. And I got my vaccination on the very second day, vaccines come out. And that was the, the Pfizer-BioNTech one. So look how fast we managed to get together, get the clinical trials running, get the patients together, get the data out, and then implement change across the globe. Mm. And in the UK now, we've administered over 30 million vaccines uh, since uh, December. That's over 50% of the adult population. Where do you see VR or XR or all the other R's that we, we spoke about? <laughs> where do you what do you see in the future? If you had to sort of you know pull out your crystal ball and gaze five to ten years into the future, and I guess AI as well, but where do you see us going with all, with all of this great technology? Um, it's a really good question. I think it's about how we use them in a way that's uh, measurable and useful. Technology isn't the answer on its own; it's an enabler. You have to find a problem to solve. And then where technology has a role, use it appropriately. It's not for everything, of course. I think it's finding that happy medium of where those solutions might be supported by using the right technology at the right time. And that's where we are at the moment. The technologies are coming. We know that they're there. They're great. But how do we solve some of the global problems with those? So that's where it's going to take its place. It'll certainly automate the um, technology. It'll certainly automate practices. It'll make everything much better. Um, but the, the, the key is to find what those roles could be. We know tech. How do you translate? How do you use it? How do you create solutions, etc.? Uh, and that's for all of us to decide, not just uh, people interested. 
it's the uh, governments, it's society as a whole, um, and also how the patients will adapt to these kind of new ways of thinking. Yeah. So there's a number of things we'll do. And the hardest thing I think with these technologies um, is, is what's called change management. Mm. So when you bring technology into a system, how do people adapt to it? How do people use it, adopt it? Mm. So you can't throw a problem. How do you work with society and people around you to encourage them to use it and adopt it? So I'll give you an example. I, I, I'm a non-exec director for a company called Medic Bleep. This is like a WhatsApp messaging tool. Uh, for doctors, you know, connect people, talk to one another, um, etc. And it's a secure system of messaging. And, and so we employed this at a hospital in the UK. And we put it, it was the first off in the UK to adopt this kind of messaging tool rather than the old bleep system. But it took a long time, day in, day out, 24 hours a day, to teach people how to use it, to put, give them the smartphone utilization to solve their problems, those issues or technical issues, solving them. And we had a team there for two weeks, day and night, working with the whole uh, hospital and their staff to make sure it was adopted. Yeah. And then we have to get back regularly to adopt that change. So once you've said this good idea, how do you implement, how do you keep people interested, how do you keep adding value to that, right? And so that's the kind of the harder piece. And I think where technology is great is how do you create that adoption and make it stick, if you like, yeah? And that's, I think, where we have to concentrate on. Yeah. Well, there's only so much change people can deal with in a short in yeah. a short period of time. It's trying to find that that magic point, right, where you're progressing fast enough but not too fast that people sort of freak out because <laughs> things are changing too quickly. Are, yeah. are you able to introduce things on a smaller scale? So you just say, okay, colorectal, we're going to use the app, Everyone else in the hospital can carry on using the old pager system. We'll you know, obviously give you our feedback and, and pros and cons and you know all the staff and, and ward staff, and then you then you scale it. Can you do it that way? We did that pilot initially. We did the orthopedic ward actually initially. Okay. So to do prove the point of concept, but then the rollout is is a tricky one. Okay. So ensure you get that right. So we showed the proof of concept, showed the data was good, and we're saving. The valuable time for nurses and doctors, uh, quicker discharges, for example, showing the real benefits of messaging. And once you've shown that, then how do you scale and set the hospital online? And that was the difficult part. I remember going to um, CERN, is the electronic health record we use. CERN is a massive uh, corporation from America, of course. So it's one of the two big companies that support the electronic health record. I remember being invited to CERN in Kansas. This was back about five or six years ago, I remember. And um, we were talking about paperless working. How to go from paper work to completely computerized records. When I came back, uh, I made sure that our surgical department was the first to go paperless. So we threw the notes away from the outpatients. Okay, <laughs> please do um, I said, we're not going to notes. We're going to go onto computers. Must be chaos. Voice dictation, voice text dictation, real-time letters. So GPs get letters automatically within 24 hours, uh, improving the flow. Ward rounds would be on a computer on wheels only typing into the notes themselves, no paper records, et cetera. So I did that for a good eight to 10 weeks to force our own department to adopt these. The challenges were sustaining it. Computers go down, uh, there's latency, sometimes the connectivity is pretty poor, it's slow. And so although it seemed the right way of going about it, how do you overcome some of the, the infrastructure problems inherent in the healthcare system? So you have to upgrade the computers, you have to have better connectivity, much faster working, et cetera. You have to invest in some of the infrastructure, right? So although it was a great idea, it meant a lot more work around it to make it seamless. Because you have to make it easier for people. If you make it harder, people won't adopt that change. 
they mm. be resistant because you're making their life longer, working harder. Why would you want to do that for? I want to make it easy for myself. Mm. So some of them forget that use interface, use experience almost has to be really simple uh, and actually spend as much time on that as the tech itself. Yeah. I can completely relate to that. One of my clinics, uh, injectable clinics, they're, they're still using paper and we've made a decision in June, we're moving digital, <laughs> it's like the, the paper's gone. And we actually made the same decision last year, but because we didn't get rid of the paper, it just sort of crept back and <laughs> at some point you have to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we're doing this. And pull the trigger, yeah. Just make that decision and get rid and deal with all the issues that might arise. And there will be difficulties sometimes, you know. I mean, when we had the year one of cry, um, uh, Trojan horse, do you remember? About two years ago, or three years ago, we were had an attack on our uh, on our system oh, yeah. uh, by, by a virus. And our hospital was affected. And of course, at that point, what do you do? Cybersecurity was an issue. And then um, we had to go back to paper records. <laughs> so we, we, for about six months, or at least three months at least, we're back to paper records. And we, we didn't know what to do. We're going to, because we moved paperless working, it was hard to go back to creating paper documents and things. So you've got to be aware of the issues that might arise with cybersecurity, with attacks, et cetera, but be ready for them. And the reason why we had that was because the NHS didn't uh, actually pay for cybersecurity. <laughs> they stopped paying for support. Yeah, and you've got... To, um, <laughs> so yeah. Then that was the it's yeah. actually a great point that, you know, at some point, let's say, you know, uh, holographic, um, you know, operations and, and robots, et cetera, are all, all the norm. If you get a cyber attack or a hack or uh, just a power failure or, or, or something, it, it's, sometimes it's very hard to, to reinvent things quickly, particularly yeah. in, in that situation. Yeah. yeah I, th- I, think, I think those attacks are in- inevitable. You can't get away from it because it's a risk, right? What we can do is, is minimize it to the best you possibly can. All these things, we do, when you're driving change in technology, is you minimize or mitigate risk as far as possible. Yeah. That's always been gender. You can't get rid, you can't get rid of all of it. It's impossible. Otherwise, you would never undergo change. So you manage it, you expect it, you think about it, you risk manage it, et cetera, uh, and you have other things in place should things go wrong. Yeah. Uh, have always plan B, if you like. So that's always been the way of doing things. So I'm assuming you've now got a redundancy set up with all of your backups being mirrored somewhere off, <laughs> off-site or something like that? I'm sure, yeah, I think they have. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure they have. They've they learned the lesson the hard way. <laughs> I've got, sorry, one more question uh, sort of related more to your company and, and virtual reality and training. I remember reading somewhere that you're developing a haptic glove that oh, yeah. will give, you know, let's say you're operating or maybe even injecting, it will give you feedback, maybe temperature, texture. It will feel like you're touching something and, and, and put, I guess, gripping a tool or a scalpel or a syringe. How does that work? And, and how far are you into that development? So look, there's, there's a, a number of companies working on this. Uh, and look, the question is how important is haptics to the the immersive experience, if you like. So we did work initially with a company trying to create something using pressure gauges, which is really effective. But actually, the other companies have superseded that. This requires huge kind of investment to make it work. And now we're seeing a number of companies producing gloves, exoskeletons, if you like, where you can almost replicate the feel and the touch going forward. And so we've seen quite a few now go to a certain prototype, producing things are now being utilized. Obviously, very expensive at this stage. I think one of them I just saw recently, which was probably the best in the market, it's cost about $100,000. So way expensive for routine regular use. Others are far more, um, um, uh, and they become more affordable. So I think we'll get there at some stage. I I said about a couple of years ago, we're two to five years away from it. We're still two to five years away from 
affordable, regular haptic gloves or suits. Um, having said that, there are some companies that, for example, there's something called the Tesla suit. So a company creating a suit that you wear, like a, um, uh, if it's over you, with all the pressure sensors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually you can feel things. Yeah. In that space. And so I remember when I was with Vodafone, at the launch of 5G connected healthcare, what they did was the uh, the remote tackle in rugby. <laughs> so <laughs> they had um, in the audience in London, uh, we had a uh, one person wearing all the haptics. Yeah, for example, and I think it was uh, Coventry in the Rico Arena where there was a proper rugby player, for example, uh, and there was one of those um, mannequins that you can push and drive against. Yeah, mm. all kids out with the sensors. So. As he pushed it out, he hit this mannequin, 5G connectivity, the person in the audience in London felt to do a jump back. He could feel the pressure of everything else, right? So yeah, so using using these sensors and wearables to show a remote tackle using 5G connected uh, connectivity. That's crazy. So yeah, so these are coming in. Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) These things are there. uh, They're coming in and it's exciting. But again, haptic is something that it's kind of, it's one of those things that, um, it's a, I think it's a Shangri-La almost mm. of of, um, of virtual reality, um, and we still haven't reached that stage where it's can be useful going forward or affordable. In fact, mm. well, I remember uh, even when I was training at uh, the Royal London or, or, or Bart's, you had a like a keyhole surgery or a laparoscopic surgery simulator, and rather than just you know almost like a pair of chopsticks in a in a model, you actually got the feedback from the tissue that you were cutting. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. So that was, uh, yeah. it's actually way more beneficial than, you know, just a simple plastic model that doesn't do that. I think you do get a sense of pressure and delicacy and and and, and that sort of thing. So it's it's interesting, but that was really rudimentary back then. Yeah, you're right. Well, I think we do need that. At the moment, we haven't got it, so we're doing without it. But at some stage, as it gets better and better, the feel, the touch that we have, it's so important. To, you know, when you're looking at planes in surgery or fields or tissues, you know, even in aesthetics, you're, you, you get a feel, don't you, mm. of what the tissue is doing, how you feel like with injections. So I think at some point that would be really important, but we haven't quite got to the area where technology can replace that at the moment. Mm. Now, we're probably going to let you go soon because it's been almost an hour and a half and we know you've got a busy day you need to get on with. But um, one thing I did want to ask you about before we let you go is um, I read that you sit on the board of uh, Fortune 500 country, com- companies and uh, you act as an advisor and you sort of alluded to that in a couple of the examples that we've um, discussed during this discussion. But what does that actually mean? What does a Fortune 500 company do and, and what's that experience like for you? And I guess, um, yeah, just give us a little bit of a breakdown on what it is. Okay, so a lot of these companies um, are looking on how to transform themselves, uh, uh, whether it's digital transformation, rethinking, reimagining the future, uh, and what they need to do as a company to be relevant going forward. That's really a key part of it. Uh, as you know, things change very quickly. Uh, the industry changes, uh, society changes, and they want to be at the forefront of that. So those companies will come to me for advice, support, saying what's our strategy look like, where do we need to be, mainly in healthcare. Um, and so I, 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 I do that with them. I, I go through experiences with them about their company, about where they're heading towards and uh, advising the strategy. Also to really look at the, where healthcare in the future uh, is heading towards. And I think what solutions they have to a problem and how they need to evolve that and what they could potentially invest in or perhaps work with. Uh, create partnerships for them, using my network so that we can actually help them in that process. So as we bring all the things I do together, bring my network, experience, knowledge, my expertise uh, in 
uh, translating into clinical practice and technologies, having um, an understanding of what that future could be predicting like. So it's a number of things that we do together, uh, working with their startups, some of the innovation hubs, for example. Uh, with Vodafone, I'm really helping Vodafone, a, a, a telco company, to understand healthcare better, to navigate the healthcare system better, to have the right opportunities, the right solutions uh, to help support this healthcare uh, system going forward. So it's a number of things that we do with them. Uh, they will, of course, invest heavily uh, in, in that future. Brilliant. Well, Shafi, I think we'll end there, but um, I just want to sort of say thank you so much for, for you know, giving up your very valuable time. I know you're probably one of the most busy men I know, a bit like Elon Musk, <laughs> with all the things that you do. Um, I'm glad that you're safe and well after everything that, you know, you guys have gone through, particularly in the hospital setting. And uh, it's just been really inspiring. Yeah. It's just been the most Amazing. fascinating conversation. And I hope the listeners have understood, you know, that obviously many of these technologies will be translatable to, to our own industry, which is aesthetics. And yeah. Um, maybe I'll put my hand up and say if you want to do a little project to work on some sort of virtual reality concept for injectable education then we can definitely speak Shafi so um, yeah so I'll, I'll leave that dangling and you can have yeah. a think with all of his spare time let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's do it but yeah I think, I think you're right Jake and um, I guess our audience are, are similar to us in a lot of ways. They like not just about, they don't like just to hear about injectables. They like to hear about innovation and healthcare and, and things that are happening out there. So not every episode has to be about Botox and fillers and surgery um, in relation to aesthetics. We want to give people interesting information that we like listening to. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just been nice to reconnect after so many years. Um, so thank you again for your time and um, stay safe. If people might want to reach out for whatever reason, maybe find out more about your company or, or, or ask you you know, a, a question about what you're up to, how can they connect with you best? Okay, so I'm on all the social media channels. LinkedIn, you can connect with me there on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. And, and also, I think my website is uh, uh, www.surgeon.ai. Uh, so you can connect and uh, see my work through there as well. So LinkedIn is my preferred method of connecting with people. It, it just seems more professional. And you're under Professor Shafi Ahmed on there? Yep. Okay, and I know that your Instagram is Virtual Surgeon. Yep, and Twitter is Shafi Ahmed 5. Perfect. Is there, there there's five other ones <laughs> before you? I can't believe that they took those tags. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit disappointed to hear there's four more before me. I was yeah. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough, Shaki. Well, listen, thank you so much again. Uh, we'll, we'll obviously connect and, and catch up soon, but uh, stay safe and thanks for your time again. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.